Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. This program is brought to you by Emory University. Good afternoon. My name is Diane Stewart. I am Associate Professor of Religion and African American Studies at Emory University. And I'm delighted to welcome you today to Emory University's Life of the Mind Faculty Discussion Series, sponsored by the Office of the Provost and the Faculty Council. The series is designed for Emory faculty to share their research with a wide audience across the Emory community and the greater public. The format is for two speakers to have about 30 minutes of discussion with each other. Then we'll open it up for about 20 minutes of questions and comments from the audience. This discussion like all of the Life of the Mind discussions, will be recorded and available on the web. During the question period, please wait for the microphone and remember that your questions and comments will be recorded and made available to web audiences. Today's featured speaker is Carol Anderson. She is Associate Professor of African American Studies and History. Professor Anderson's research and teaching focus on public policy, particularly the ways that domestic and international policies intersect through issues of race, justice, and equality in the United States. Her research has garnered substantial fellowships and grants from the American Council of Learned Societies, the Ford Foundation, National Humanities Center, Harvard University's Charles Warren Center, the Committee on Institutional Cooperation, and the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History. Professor Anderson is the author of Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African American Struggle for Human Rights. 1944 to 1955, which was published by Cambridge University Press and awarded both the Gustavus Myers and Myrna Burneth Book Awards. She will be discussing with us today her latest book, Bourgeois Radicals, the NAACP, and the Struggle for Colonial Liberation, 1941 to 1960. In this pioneering work, she uncovers the long hidden and important role of the nation's most powerful civil rights organization in the fight for the liberation of peoples of color in Africa and Asia. Both of these works are on sale out front and she will be happy to sign copies for you after the event. Professor Anderson will be discussing her work with Brett Gadsden, 
also Associate Professor of African American Studies and History. His research interests include 20th century African American history, African American freedom struggles, and politics, post-World War II America, race and American political development, and law and education. He is the author of Between North and South, Delaware, Desegregation, and the Myth of American Sectionalism, which was published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2013. Here he examines the three decades long effort to desegregate the state system of public education. Professor Gadsden is currently working on a book project tentatively, tentatively titled, From Protest to Politics, The Making of the Second Black Cabinet, JFK to Nixon. In this work, he is exploring rising black electoral, electoral politics, direct action campaigns in the South, urban uprisings, and growing popular support for civil rights advances that brought African Americans, often framed as radical advisors, into consultative relationships with presidential candidates and later into key cabinet, sub-cabinet, and other important positions in the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations. Professor Anderson writes not just for the academy, but also for the wider American and global public. Her engaged scholarship extends to work with historical exhibitions, such as the Traveling Florida Modern Day Slavery Museum, which she brought to Emory's campus a few years ago, and her noted op-ed pieces in national news outlets. In fact, her August 2014 Washington Post op-ed on the unfolding events in the wake of Ferguson, Missouri teenager Michael Brown's death was the most widely shared op-ed at the Washington Post last year. It should not surprise us then that she has recently signed a contract with Bloomsbury Press, a division of Macmillan, to publish White Rage a book that will explore further the historical and contemporary roots of racial oppression and divide in the United States. Professor Anderson brags about being worthless in the kitchen. Oh, yes. <laughs> and loving football more than all of the men in America combined. <laughs> but it took one African American Studies Department potluck to discover that she makes the meanest macaroni and cheese I have ever tasted in my life. Look, I am just happy to share the same mercurial birthday with such an amazing intellect who calls me the good twin and names herself the evil twin. <laughs> Professor Anderson is no evil twin. However, she is unsurpassable in uncovering and analyzing the evils of history and the veiled narratives of peoples and organizations that fought tirelessly to eradicate them. Professor Gadsden is an ideal discussant for today's Life of the Mind topic, and I can assure you that these two 20th century historians will provoke us to wrestle more deliberately with difficult questions about the histories we like to tell 
versus the histories we must tell. The title of their discussion today is Bourgeois Radicals, Crushing the White Man's Burden, NAACP Style. Please join me in welcoming Professor Carol Anderson and Professor Brent Gadsden. <laughs> Thank you, Diane, for that great introduction. Um, I wonder, Carol, if we might just start, um, if you could provide us with just a kind of brief overview of the kind of narrative arc of, of bourgeois radicals, um, especially as uh, your work addresses the NACP's work in southern Africa, um, the Horn of Africa, and Indonesia. Um, and, and I will start with that, that with how I got started on this, because that will explain the arc. Um, the history of the NAACP, particularly in its anti-colonial work, basically says that the NAACP turned its back in 1947 when the Cold War came, um, accepted a few pieces of silver in terms of civil rights concessions from the Truman administration, and then backed the Truman administration in its Cold War foreign policy, including supporting the European regime's um, attempt to control co uh, colonialism and stop the liberation of peoples in Africa and Asia. And that has been the story since 1971. The problem with that is, is that I'm in the NAACP papers and I'm looking at the finding aid and I see all of these boxes marked Africa, 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 Asia, 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 Asia. And I went, <laughs> I said, what's the, they can't all be rejection notices, right? <laughs> and so I peeked in the box because as a historian, we're naturally nosy. Um, and I peeked in the box and there's this incredible letter from Abdullahi Issa the prime minister, the future prime minister of Somalia, but at the time he was the head of the Somali Youth League. And he was writing to the NAACP in 1949, so two years after the NAACP's back was supposedly turned. And he said, thank you for all of your help in the UN for keeping the Italians off of us. And I went, you know how you have those Scooby-Doo moments? <laughs> this was a Scooby-Doo moment. I said, oh, something's going on here. <laughs> um, and that is what led to bourgeois radicals, because what I knew then was that no one had looked in the voluminous NAACP papers to see how the largest, oldest, most powerful civil rights organization actually waded into this, this epic battle for colonial liberation after the end of the Second World War. And when I, when I started digging, it, it was nirvana. Um, I saw this battle for, uh, against apartheid South Africa for the liberation of Namibia. I saw this incredible knockdown, drag out battle for the liberation of Libya, Eritrea, and Somalia. And then what begins to really be very disruptive in terms of our narrative of the NAACP. You know, as so we think of even Pan-Africanism and that, and that that's where the NAACP's vision just begins and ends. But instead, I saw them wading into the battle against the Dutch for Indonesia's independence. And I went, oh, this is sweet. And so that's the arc, is looking at how they waded into these battles, the mechanisms that they used. And then when I'm beginning to see a decline, why am I seeing that decline? And it was not the Cold War that did it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, your, in your book, you develop 
this framework um, in, when you're kind of analyzing the, the activism of the NACP that you call the third way. I wonder if you could elaborate on that kind of conceptual framework. One of the things that struck me about the NAACP's activism, uh, for those of us who studied domestic politics and, and the role that the NAACP played in civil rights, um, what we see is that the NAACP can sometimes be Godzilla. You know, come in and they just crush all contenders because they are the leader in civil rights. When I'm looking at this battle for colonial liberation, what I'm seeing instead is a very different type of NAACP. It is an NAACP that is collaborative. It is an NAACP that in fact takes its cues from the indigenous people. And so the beginning of that I saw, for instance, was a conference in 1945 hosted by the NAACP, bringing in the indigenous leadership. And this is March 1940, March, April 1945. And the question was, what does a new world order look like? We have taken on the Nazis. We have taken on the Japanese. We know that fascism is absolutely destructive to, to life. What does a new world order look like after we're, we're dealing with what is essentially almost 55 million deaths? And the answer that the indigenous leadership began to lay out would in fact form this third way. And what that means is, is that you have this on one hand in, in terms of a, a kind of a leftist politics, you had the Soviet Union being the, the leader of, this, of, of one camp, you know, that you have a communist uh, framework for liberation that would include um, the end of private property, um, a, a really strong central government, da 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 da. On the other hand, the NAACP is looking at what capitalism has done, and it is not impressed. It looks at capitalism and what it sees is peonage. The NAACP is, you know, they're fighting peonage cases left and right. They're fighting against labor discrimination, even discrimination within the unions, which are supposed to be the allies. Um, and they're fighting that. They're seeing massive exploitation. And, and so there's like, that's not going to work either. The thing that they saw that would work was combining private enterprise with human rights. Because with human rights, you're beginning to recognize the dignity of the human being. And with human rights, you're going to end that exploitation. That if you embed human rights, particularly into the operating code, into the DNA of a nation, then you have a nation whose governing ethos is the people. And when that governing ethos is about the well-being of the people, then you have a very different way that you are framing questions in terms of policy and politics. That was the NAACP's third way, based upon its collaborative consultation with a range of indigenous leaders. Mm. Well, I, I wonder then if you just discuss this paradox that seems kind of evident in, the, in your title and the way in which you modify radicals with the term bourgeois, right? Which is just, just some, they, those two words don't seem to go together. No, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do I know. Uh, and, and what I was getting at there is the NAACP has a reputation, and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was one of its founding members and who was then kicked out of the organization for good in 48, um, 
he spoke contemptuously about how the, the NAACP leadership was nothing but a bunch of bourgeois people who are just so afraid of doing anything that's not respectable. You can't expect them to wade into this battle. I mean, it was, you could just see it dripping. And don't get me, I love Du Bois, but I was like, no, you got it wrong this time. Um, but that, that moniker of being so bourgeois, so, so dealing with respectability, so concerned about uh, not um, ruffling any kinds of feathers, so concerned about being accepted about by the mainstream that um, it, it, it basically would not do the heavy lifting of challenging an oppressive system. Except, and so then when you think about radicals, what radicals do is they look at a system and they're saying, no, it's not working for the people. It is not working for the people. This thing not only has to be kind of tweaked here and tweaked there, this thing has to be upset. It has to, it has to be overturned. And so by, when I began to look at what the NAACP was doing in this colonial, where they're taking on something as big as colonialism, and think about it, the European powers had based their great power status on the size of their empire. And so Great Britain, empire, Great Britain would stand there and be so proud of how big its empire, upon which the sun never set, right? And, and so then there was France, we're like, yeah, but ours is really big in Africa. And then the Dutch, but yeah, but we have Indonesia. And so you hear them jockeying for position around the table based on the size of their empire. And particularly after the Second World War, when they have faced devastating losses fighting the Nazis, their empire is all that they're hanging on to for their sense of identity and being and stature. And so now you have an organization like the NAACP working with indigenous freedom fighters to upset a way of life that has been in place since what, the 1500s? And then they really took hold in the late 19th century and has been the ways that the European powers have defined themselves? This is radical. This is radical. So watching this organization in ties, and so I've just got to say, I'm going to, the cover of the book just, so here, to me, this em embraced this feeling of bourgeoisness, right? So you have Mrs. Jessie Van, who is the co-owner of the Pittsburgh Courier, one of the key black newspapers in America. And here she has her furs on, the, the big Sunday hat. You've got Roy Wilkins all tied up. And you have Nehru, Prime Minister Nehru of India. And they're handing him a lifetime membership in the NAACP. I mean, it's just, and so you begin to think about this because Nehru is sticking in the craw of the British Empire like nobody's business. And the NAACP is working with the Indian government in terms to disrupt these colonial empires. But they're suited up. You don't see them, you know, you know um, carbined up. No, they're suited up. They're figuring out how power works within the bureaucracies, and then they're short-circuiting that power. Yeah, because there seems to be a kind of strategic and tactical genius about the NACP's work in their wow. efforts against anti-colonialism. Yes, that's, and that's, I've got to say, that was the thing that uh, struck me. When I, when I first began, the first thing that I was looking at was just, oh my gosh, they're here. Because 40 years of literature said that they weren't. You know, they're here. 
I mean, oh, they're, they're, with this, they're at this meeting. Oh my gosh, there they are writing this platform. Oh my gosh, there they are at the White House, pounding on the White House and the State Department. They're here. And then the second phase of that, it's like, okay, so they're here, but what did they do? And then it was watching what they did. It was it's so strategic. I, I describe it like um, a Jenga tower. Um, one of the things when we're looking at the ways that the NAACP worked to take down Jim Crow with the Brown decision is that it figured out what were the key pillars in, that were propping up Jim Crow and then began to remove them with each legal case coming through the Supreme Court. They did the same thing with colonialism. What's propping up the white man's burden? How do we begin to delegitimize what is seen as legitimate? And as they began to move those pillars out, the thing began to just crumble and quake. Very strategic. Now, I have to ask um, this question, and forgive me, but mm. uh, you, you kind of borderline commit uh, an act of apostasy, I think, in Heresy. your book. <laughs> yes. Um, in, in your call to decenter W.B. Du Bois. Oh. Um, that seemed to be a particularly bold demand. Mm -hmm. I, I, wish, I, I hope you'll elaborate. Um, and you also take a really critical approach to another kind of icon of African-American studies and of leftist politics, and that's Paul Robeson. Uh, elaborate, please. <laughs> and, and what I was in search of was the truth. And as a scholar, when you're in search of the truth, no matter how much you feel an affinity for one of your, your, your characters that you're, you're researching, um, you have to tell the truth. And so, so let me back up, let me start with Du Bois, um, whom I fell in love with many, many, many years ago. And I still love him. I don't know if he loves me now, but I still love him. <laughs> um, is that one of the ways that I began to try, part of what I had to do was to figure out how did we get here as scholars, where we have just erased an organization that has four to 500,000 dues-paying members, and focused instead on groups that may have at best 100 members, and called that African-American mobilization. How did we get here as scholars over, over 40 years of scholarship? And so I started doing what scholars do. I started digging through their footnotes and tracing it back, tracing back the genealogy of where we came up with, with that idea. Um, and what I saw was that the NAACP papers had not been consulted. Instead, that, that premise of the NAACP turned its back and walked away was based on statements by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and they were based on statements by W.E.B. Du Bois in 1948 and after, when he had been kicked out of the organization that he helped found. As scholars, we have to ask the question, what is the perspective? What is driving this statement? And I'm saying, if I'm 80-some years old, and I get kicked out of the organization that I helped found, I just may not have words, kind words for that organization. You know, as a scholar, you have to ask that question, but instead, because he is Du Bois, and his words are so powerful and eloquent, and historians love a good quote, is that he became so quotable that so you would get, and, and I have to say that the first article that said, turned your back and walked away, that source was Du Bois. 
Then the second book, um, the source was Du Bois, the first article. Then the third book was the book, Du Bois, and the first article. Then, you know, and so, so by the time you're done, you've got a footnote this thick that actually looks like it has really truly been researched. But when you, you snake through it, it hasn't. And so because everybody had then said, well, because Du Bois says they're bourgeois and worthless, because Du Bois says that they have hopped on the Truman bandwagon and sold out the people of Africa, and because Du Bois has then left, then clearly after 1948, any kind of the activism that the NAACP had left with W.E.B. Du Bois. Then I'm asking myself, self? <laughs> then why am I seeing Abdullahi Issa thanking the NAACP for its work in 1949 if that activism has left? And so, what, and so I likened it to, um, in the, in the introduction, to the old Ptolemaic system of understanding the universe where you had this kind of Earth-centered uh, uh, cosmology and, and everything was based on the Earth being the center. Du Bois was the center of that kind of anti-colonial work on, Af on African Americans. But if you remove, if you begin to look at what the evidence actually says, you see that the Earth is not the center. In fact, it's a solar system. And, 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 and so what scholars were doing with that Ptolemaic system is they're doing all kinds of what I call mathematical gymnastics, trying to make the evidence fit what they think is the center of the Earth. And after a while, your mathematics can't stretch that far. And this is what was happening. If you looked in the NAACP records, then all of a sudden, Du Bois is not the center of this anti-colonial universe in the NAACP. There is this sense that the thing that they are fighting domestically, the white supremacy that is propping up Jim Crow is the same white supremacy that is propping up colonialism. And so you can't take it down here and think you have eradicated the problem. You have to wipe this thing out globally. And so that became the core of their operating principle, not Du Bois. Now with Robeson, whew, that one was doubly hard. And, and I think here what we see for historians is that we love the arc of a martyr. We love to write the tale of someone who had everything and then gave it up for a greater good. And so here with Robeson, you have a man who has an Ivy League education. He's a star on Broadway. He's a star on Hollywood. He has this fabulous singing career. He has a mansion, the beaches at Enfield in Connecticut. And again, this is a black man in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, so he has really hit the pinnacle. And he is fighting for anti-colonialism. And so when and and he believes that the way to do that is through the Soviet Union. He, he is a firm believer in the power and the, the goodness of the Soviet Union, that this is a force for good in the world. Now, the problem is, and so when we write that, and so because he believes in the Soviet Union, when the second Red Scare comes, the US government took him on and took him down, and he lost everything. As historians, when we write that, that is a powerful story to tell. 
And I don't deny that story at all. But what I began to do is when I, for instance, when I got to the Italian colonies issue, when scholars write about Robeson, they're particularly focused in on his work in South Africa. And it's really easy to see the congruity there between Soviet foreign policy um, and Robeson's policy. And it just all works in that you have the West backing the apartheid regime. It just makes it easy. It's just easy to write that. But the story gets more complex when you go north. And that complexity has the Soviet Union's policy swinging. So in 45, the Soviet Union says that it thinks that it wants a part of Libya um, as its down payment on reparations from Italy. And, and, and it's like, and so you, you have the Soviet Union, this largest anti-colonial power, ready to become a colonial power by taking over a piece of Libya. Robeson says, I think that's a great idea. And you're like, <laughs> and then in 48, and, and meanwhile, you have the Libyans, the Eritreans, and the Somalis, as well as the Ethiopians, who had had to deal with an Italian invasion. Um, fighting tooth and nail to try to keep Italy from being able to regain any of that territory. And so in 48, though, the Communist Party in Italy, um, they had, in the midterm election, had won 40% of the election. And so the Soviets are looking up, because the Cold War has really started by now, the Soviets are looking up and said, you know, if we play our cards right, we can have a duly elected communist government sitting in Western Europe. And then you almost can hear, right? <laughs> and so the Soviets come up with this great idea that it's going to throw its enormous weight behind the Communist Party by saying that we believe that Italy should regain control over all of its former colonies. Now, here we have the indigenous people saying, if Italy gets here, it's going to be war. We're willing to fight to the death. Here you have the world's greatest anti-colonial power saying, yeah, we think Italy ought to get its colonies back. I'm looking for what Robeson's saying, because Robeson has been fighting all along, saying all along that Italy should not get its colonies back. Robeson goes silent. I mean, that kind of wild, crazy silent. I looked in the Robeson papers. I looked in the Du Bois papers. I looked in the W. Alpheus Hunton papers. I looked in their newsletter for the Council on African Affairs. I looked in the FBI file on Robeson. I looked in the MI5 file on Robeson. <laughs> Not a mumbling word. And I went, And the, it was the NAACP that stood up and said, Not on my watch and came out swinging for the Libyans, the Eritreans, and the Somalis. And I thought, whoa, whoa. So and part of, as a historian, part of what we have to understand is that our heroes can be flawed. They don't always make the best decisions. And what does it mean? What are the implications of that? As scholars, we have to wrestle with that. We can't elide over it. Well, and your study of Robeson, I think, seems to have a tremendous impact on how we study the left just in general and the left's internationalism. And, and I think there it's because, once again, you get that kind of heroic arc that um, because 
what happened during colonialism was so brutal, so heinous, is that the automatic assumption is that if you just adopt leftist policies, leftist politics, all, it's all going to be good. Um, and and I, 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 so therefore I mention in, in bourgeois radicals that the issue really isn't uh, right or left because uh, what we have seen in the post-colonial era are that regimes that are of right-wing regimes can be just as brutal as communist regimes. Um, you know, we, we have Pol Pot, um, who was a communist who took out 1.7 million of his 7 million people. He's a communist. Being a communist does not necessarily make this work for a nation. And so we have to ask another set of questions. And that's what I'm pushing us to do as scholars. And the human rights framework actually gets us a way to, to, to avoid those kind of pitfalls of, of hero worship and good. I um, think so, yes. Now, in your career, you seem to straddle two seemingly kind of incongruous historical subfields, right? African-American studies, or African-American history, mm -hmm. and diplomatic history. And kind of in the history of the profession, the two have not met very often. And yet you've kind of grabbed them both and pulled them together. I wonder if you, yeah. especially as a kind of, as a kind of, um, maybe model for our graduate, ambitious graduate students describe okay. that. Okay, that. so yeah, let, let, me, let me tell you how that craziness came about. <laughs> so I'm in grad school and have to write a research paper. You know, you're in a research seminar, you gotta come up with the paper. And I had been doing my reading, you know, how we're reading that crazy schedule of almost a book a day. And what I noticed was that, so I'm reading in um, Cold War history. And then I'm reading in African-American and civil rights history. And I'm reading in human rights history. And I'm reading in anti-colonial history. And all of this is happening at the same time. But none of these works are talking to each other. They all have a lot of the same characters. But none of these works are even referencing that these characters are thinking about any of the other things that are happening. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's not like President Truman said, OK, now I'm going to deal with the Cold War. And he opens up his brain and you know, puts the Cold War brain in, closes his skull up, just deals with Cold War stuff. And OK, now I'm going to deal with civil rights. <laughs> opens it up and puts in his civil rights brain. I said, that doesn't make any sense. So I saunter into my advisor's office. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to write about something about Cold War and civil rights. And he, I remember this. You know you remember those moments. He went. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, I'm thinking about writing on Cold War civil rights. <laughs> he said, what? And so I do this explanation. And he said, and by this time, and I'm, I'm trying to get my swag on, you know, as best you can as a grad student. I'm trying to get my intellectual swag on. And I, yes, I, I'm going to write on Cold War civil rights. <laughs> and he said, well, if you can find it, go for it. And I walked out of there like, yeah. <laughs> and then it hit me. I was like, ooh. I think your mouth just wrote a check that your butt can't cash. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I had no idea where to begin because there, wa there was not this field. You know, it didn't exist. And I thought, well, if anybody might possibly know something about this, it might be the NAACP. And so I just thought, let me go through their board of directors minutes and see if there's anything there. Oh my gosh, every meeting they were talking about anti-colonialism and human rights, as well as Jim Crow, every meeting. And, that's, and so I began, so what had to happen then as a scholar is I had to begin to really master the field of African American history. I had to know the characters, I had to know the currents, I had to know the debates, I had to know the scholarship. I also had to master the, the field of diplomatic history. I had to understand the Cold War and all of the players. I had to understand these, these key events. And so that helps me understand why sometimes when scholars were going through the NAACP papers and they saw, for instance, this multiple files dealing with the Italian colonies issue, that because they didn't have that Cold War diplomatic history frame, they didn't understand how central Italy was to US Cold War foreign policy. But it was by having training in this, these two fields that allowed me to cross talk and see what these references meant for helping us understand why we look the way we do after the Second World War. Oh, that's interesting. Um, just one final question before we open it up to the audience. I wonder if you um, might think about the kind of broader implications of your work, um, especially as you kind of pushed past your temporal, the backside of your temporal frame, yeah. uh, especially as we think about two concepts, political independence and human rights, right? Um, mm. The history of kind of US and Western intervention in Asia and Africa. I mean, so, so as I'm winding up the book, part of what, you know, as I said, the NAACP um, working with indigenous leaders had a framework that political independence would require human rights. And, and let me just say, so you, you, know, you back up to reconstruction. And so African Americans gain their freedom, their independence. But there was no, there were no human rights around them, from the right to vote, um, to the right to healthcare, the right to education, and what that did was created a level of vulnerability and instability that put them right in the crosshairs. NAACP is looking at this, saying, as we move from a colonial world to a world full of nations, if we do not treat the people with dignity, if we do not ensure that we have a viable education system so that people are able to run their own government and their own systems, if we do not ensure that people have the right to health care, because when people are sick, when they are ill, it is very difficult for them to fully participate in democracy. If we do not ensure that we have labor standards, then we will continue to have the kinds of economic exploitation that will drag people down and ensure systemic poverty. Part of what happened in the international system as we start moving into the 1950s is you begin to see political independence gaining greater and greater traction 
but human rights being stalled at the UN's door for a variety of reasons. You could not find a chief advocate. The US, because of Jim Crow in America and the power of the Southern Democrats, did not want human rights anywhere near America's borders. The Soviet Union, because of its gulag system, crushing the, 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 um, the crushing East Germany, crushing Hungary, crushing Poland, 53 and 56, they don't want to deal with human rights either. The colonial powers, uh-uh. And so then I'm looking at the indigenous leadership and part of what begins to happen as you get to independence is that the issue becomes more on territorial integrity than on what is happening to the people themselves. It's almost like you get a prioritization list, that first we have to deal with our, our, our borders, our boundaries, and then we will look. And what happens then is that human rights get shunted aside. And so you end up with political independence coming, really rushing to the fore in 1960, but you don't have the mechanisms underneath that in fact ensure the viability of a people. And so that's that. And when you begin to think about the UN's current Millennium Development Goals, as it's dealing with poverty, what it's dealing with is the lack of human rights across the board. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Uh, so if we could. Spend a, a little bit of time asking um, questions. I would just ask that you keep your questions succinct, more question than statement, because I want to hear Carol talk. <laughs> so. And wait yes. for the mic. Yes. Thanks. I just wanted to ask you about our current situation and how we'll be looked at uh, 50, 100 years from now. A few quick things. The Congo the massive rape. It's like Hitler being alive today. And it's these countries all over the world that are mining for minerals. It's not the Congo people. It's, it's these businesses. And at the Jimmy Carter Library, they had a guy who wrote a book on it. All these uh, millions of girls being raped, they have military regimens uh, protecting the mines for minerals, for cell phones and computer chips. But at the end of the day, they say, you did a good job, now go out and rape the girls. How are historians going to look at us and this going on and it being ignored? Because you can call on your cell phone and talk to the girls who've been raped and the fathers who've been killed trying to stop it. That's one perspective. The other is, in this country, we have 1% of the population owning 40% of the country. And we have valet workers here at Emory who don't have health insurance. <laughs> and they get sick and they can't go to the emergency room that they work in front of. Or Medicaid expansion that doesn't pass here. And that's like dragging somebody through the street until their cancer spreads and then they can get care. And so I will try to deal with that succinctly. <laughs> um, and, and what I will say is I, I teach several courses. I, I, and I, some of my students are here, and I have the best students in the world. I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to put it out there. Um, 
is, for instance, we deal with this in my war crimes and genocide class. Um, we deal with this in my American human rights policy class. And as it has always been a struggle, but one of the things in which I find solace doesn't even get close to it, is that there have always been people and organizations that say, not on my watch. And they mobilize, and they fight. And so the reason we know about conflict minerals are because people are in there getting the word out. The reason we know about the 1% and the lack of health care, because people are in there spreading the knowledge, because part of what I saw in the NAACP's work when they're saying, because what they're really saying is, how do we change the norm? How do we change what is acceptable to unacceptable? How do we change apartheid from being a, you know, a, a, apartheid South Africa from being a valued ally of the West to being an international pariah? This work, it's long, slow, hard work, but it's work nonetheless. And so the way that historians will write this is if we win. If we win, if that mobilization, if those norms get changed, if we're able to save those girls, if we're able to ensure that we have human rights in the United States, that's how historians will write this, that this was the moment where the mobilization really began to take hold. I think I saw a question Eric. over here. Yes. So Carol, you said that, uh, the NAACP backed off on the anti-colonialism eventually, but it wasn't because of the Cold War. So I, what's the story? I think I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm telling you, it, it just kind of blew me away as I'm getting into the, um, the archives. The thing that threw the NAACP off was the Brown decision. Because with Brown v. Board of Education, the South rose up and said, you're going to die and did everything that it, that it could in order to run the NAACP out of business. Um, so here in Georgia, for instance, um, they levied a tax bill, oh my God, in I think the six-figure range, maybe, close to that, saying, you know, you know, you're not some nonprofit little organization. In fact, you're, you're an entity that needs to be taxed. So, in so in not just these, but your back taxes and then handed the NAACP the bill and said, pay it. <laughs> now think about it. This is an organization where 75% of its funding comes from African Americans. 75% of its funding comes from a people who are facing incredible economic discrimination in the workplace. And where you have very, not only disparate wealth, you have got disparate income. And so when you sit, turn to this organization and say, come up with this fine. If you can't come up with this fine, we're going to take you to court and we're going to destroy you. They, the Alabama was demanding the membership list of the NAACP, the attorney general. What they were going to do with that list was to find out exactly who these NAACP members were, distribute them, um, put, them put those names in the newspaper, and so that their members could then face incredible economic extortion, that you could be fired from your job, your mortgage could be called in. It, it just ways to cripple the organization. Um, several of these states passed laws that said NAACP members could not hold public employment. 
And, and so the NAACP is fighting tooth and nail to try just for the organization to exist and to protect its members. That way, you know, and so it has to, it has to refocus and it's trying to get Brown implemented. So it's fighting for its very life. It's trying to get Brown implemented. It's like, what are we going to do? What they did and what I, best I can tell, nobody has identified yet, except me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that it began to work with other organizations to create an organization solely committed to the liberation of Africa. And that was the American Committee on Africa. I mean, so you see a kind of vision there that we often don't associate with the NAACP, not just domestically, but even globally. So, so it was Brown, it was their greatest triumph that in fact really knocked them off stride in terms of anti-colonialism. More questions? Yes. Hi, uh, my question is, uh, could you talk a little bit more about Paul Robeson in the case of uh, Italy? Uh, just I want to know a little bit of how official uh, the Soviet Union's plans for giving Italy back the colonies were, and if Robeson ever had any, was subsequently asked after the fact about it? So, in the 1948 election, and I mean, in, in, in Italy was a major battleground, and Andrea is here, so Italy was a major battleground. The U.S. is pumping in millions and millions of dollars via the Marshall Plan and via the CIA to try to swing this election. The Soviets are doing all that they can. One of the things that they did is that um, there was what they called a four-power commission that went into North Africa and the Horn to in fact do an assessment from the indigenous people themselves about what they wanted their future to be. The Americans and the British are on this side. The Soviets team up with the French because the French had been fighting uh, uh, this, this issue of liberation the entire time because the French are trying to hold on to Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. And as they said, they were afraid that this all this independent stuff would leak out from Libya and infect um, their, their, their areas. And so the French and the Soviets are going and saying, don't you want the Italians back? And, and, and the folks are going, absolutely not. And the, the Soviets and the French will record, absolutely. <laughs> like, and the British and the Americans are going, oh, you missed the not. Ah. Um, and so you see the Soviets in Libya, in Eritrea, in Somalia, teaming up with the French, trying to, and sending the word back to Italy, look how we're fighting for you, look how we're fighting for you. But the Christian Democrats actually won the election in 1948 in Italy, not the Communist Party of Italy. So a few months later, there's the conference, uh, uh, um, Council on Foreign Ministers meeting, where they're going to try to decide what to do with the Italian colonies. And the Soviets come into the meeting, and they sit there, and they're like, okay, so I think we're all in agreement. Um, the Americans are saying, I think we're all in agreement here on at least one item, and that is that at least Somalia can go back to Italy. And the Soviets said, eh, yet. Stop right there. 
we believe that uh, what we really need is to have an international administration of all the colonies, a UN trusteeship over all the colonies. And this is because the Italian Communist Party lost the election. So now there was no need for the Soviets. So, you know, so the Soviets swing once again. Three days later, Paul Robeson and his group get together and they issue basically a, a press release saying that they believe that what needs to happen for the Italian colonies is an international administration of these colonies, you know, that the UN would take them over. And I'm sitting there going, wow. Um, as far as I can tell, no one called him on it. No one called him on it. What I can tell is that the NAACP called the Soviets on it. Um, Walter White, who was the head of the NAACP, was not a rabid anti-communist. Um, he was anti-communist, but not a rabid anti-communist. And he had an affinity for Paul Robeson. He, he respected him in many ways, and so he wasn't going to call him out, but he wasn't about to abide by the policy either. Yeah. So just a little follow-up. So when you said uh, the Soviets and the French teamed up, that was before the 1948 election, right? Yes, this was right before the election, again, as a way to try to swing the votes in Italy to the Communist Party by saying that only the Communist Party had the great power backing in order for Italy to become a colonial power again. Your, your framework really troubles this kind of east-west di global divide that I think animates so much of U.S and European history, I think. It, it's kind of interesting to think about the, 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 you know, the West and the East kind of in cahoots, in right? Cahoots. In, ter in terms of perpetuating some kind of colonial dominance right. I mean, over the, especially the natural resources of the South. Right, and, and, and uh, you know, and where part of another place where you see that in cahoots where you often don't think of it in our current historiography was even at the founding conference of the UN, where when it came to the human rights, you know, having human rights and put into the UN Charter, when it comes to Article 2, Section 7, which is the domestic jurisdiction clause that says that the UN has absolutely no authority to, to do anything unless, uh, you know, it, to violate the sovereignty of a nation despite what they're doing. This is right after Hitler, really? So, and what, what, you, what we don't see is that the Americans, the British, and the Soviets sat around the table and said, we like Article 2, Section 7. So you see them signing off because they all had their own um, secure, national security or, or interest reasons for, for doing that. Um, the Soviets knew that they, you know, they, were, they, were, they came out of that war, the second largest power um, on Earth. And there were things it wanted. And human rights were not about to get in the way of that. The British are trying to hold on to their empire at all costs. And the Americans have Jim Crow and all of the other ills, um, including a really racist immigration policy. They did not want to have the UN having the authority to look at that. So part of what not being tied to one camp or the other, but instead letting the, the evidence drive what you see, that in fact to me creates a much richer, much more natural, and much more realistic story about how we got here. Mm. Any more questions? Yes. 
Thanks, Carol, very much. Uh, if there's one um, liberation movement that uh, had close ties to the NAACP, going back to Niagara Falls, is the African National Congress. Um, there you do have the overthrow of apartheid in a black majority government. Uh, oppression in this country and the terrorism in this country is far worse than anything I've ever seen in South Africa. That's just way of an aside. Today, however, the ANC, if you can sort of shed some light on the origins of their relationship with the, ANC, with the NAACP and how they have evolved might be useful for informing the current kind of forsaking of some of the better instincts of their nature. I mean, Cornell West has lectured the South Africans, I thought very appropriately, on prophetic fire in Mandela, and sort of saying, where are you guys going today? Because you now have power, you have state power, and, and you're not living up to those traditions. Have you looked at all into the kind of historiography of the ANC and the, um, as they perceived the NAACP, and we know how much they were impacted by Dr. King and the, and the movement in the 60s, but give us a little context here and whether or not there's leverage today. Do, do African Americans have leverage, do you think, um, on that situation? Because it's terribly important. Oh, I love these easy questions. <laughs> um, I will start with um, what is an article that I'm working on right now. Um, and it's called Hang Your Conscience on a Peg. Uh, the NAACP, the African National Congress, and um, the, the struggle against the World Bank. Um, and what I'm seeing in the late 40s, early 50s, is an alliance between the NAACP and the African National Congress to take down a series of World Bank loans to the apartheid regime. Um, they had, in fact, worked out the, the mechanisms, the strategy that would eventually become the divestment movement that we see in the 80s, the late 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s. Part of what they worked out was that this regime could not stand without external funds, massive external funds. Because when you require a police state in order to suppress 90% of your population, what that cost is so prohibitive that in fact the 10% cannot enjoy any kind of quality of life because you've got this incredible police state. So you have to have a massive infusion of funds coming in consistently to prop that up. And so they said, let's shut off the dollars. That sounds like divestment. And so they started putting pressure on the World Bank that, that started sending in millions of dollars to develop. Um, South Africa to develop the railroads, to create greater access to the mines, um, to create greater electricity capacity and all of those things. And there's this incredible correspondence between Walter White, the head of the NAACP, and Eugene Black, the head of the World Bank. So yes, and I see the irony there, White. <laughs> um, and, and Walter White says, what are you doing? These folks are Nazis. You're propping up Nazis. And, and Eugene Black says, no, we think our loans will help the Africans more than anybody else. And so, and, and so you hear Walter White almost in the marginalia going, can you believe this mess? But what he does is he turns to um, Z.K. Matthews, 
who was the head of the ANC in Cape Town and whom the NAACP had helped sponsor for a trip over here. Um, so they turned to Z.K. Matthews and they're like, okay, this is what he said. But what we know when you're taking on these kinds of regimes is you can't argue from sentiment. You have to argue from fact. We need the facts. And Z.K. Matthews, knowing that his mail may be censored or may be looked at, sent over a slew of documentation that the, a, that the NAACP continued to use. And, and so part of the strategy, again, with the anti-apartheid movement was the use of media. Because how do you change the norms? How do you begin to help people understand that this is wrong? And so they began to use the media to say, we have Nazis. We are using the dollars designed for the development of liberal democracies to, in fact, prop up a racist, fascist regime that bows at the altar of Adolf Hitler. That is highly problematic. This is how you begin to reshape the norms. And so they're using the media. They're using direct action tactics. We don't often think of the NAACP as picketing, right? You, you get, again, this really flat narrative that all they do is work through the courts. But instead, they're financing picketing of the South African delegation at the UN. Now, just fast forward to the picketing of the South African embassy in Washington, DC during the, the more understood anti-apartheid movement. And so they are working out the strategies. You, I see the crosstalk between these two groups. How's this going? What about this? This is what we need. OK, we're going to come at them this way. We're going to come at them that way. And the World Bank doesn't budge. But their records were declassified, and I went through all of the process and got them declassified so I could figure out what the I got some of the documentation originally about the uh, programs that were being funded. But what I wanted to know was, what did the World Bank see? And what I'm finding is that there was a knockdown, drag out battle in the board of directors of the World Bank over whether to fund apartheid South Africa as well. And so part of the NAACP strategy, I'm, I'm seeing this in this anti-colonial book, is that you find you have allies in these spaces. If you flatten it off and say, oh, that's the State Department, or if you, ah, that's the UN, ah, that's the World Bank. But what they knew is that they had allies in there. If you can get to those allies with your viewpoints, with your documentation, then they can carry that into the council around the table and begin to shape the terms of debate. And again, this is a slow drip, 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 drip but it eventually worked. Part of what the ANC had to deal with, with the end of the apartheid regime, was the World Bank basically saying, yes, now you have to take on all of the loans from this regime. So no, you don't get any kind of you know, fresh start. And begin to think about it in a really weird, sick way. That's what happened to Haiti when Haiti got its freedom, is that it had to take on all of the debt and pay France for its freedom in order to, to, to be recognized as a nation of the world. So when we, when we kind of write these things, we have to be able to look at them within this, this much larger global context and the pressures that are put on new regimes as they're trying to, to find their way. 
And this, again, is not to abdicate responsibility that if anybody is going to look after your people, it's got to be you. you we got to find a way to do that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I think we've gone a good long bit. Uh, thank you, Carol Anderson. Thank you, Brett. This was a great talk, and thank you, audience, for some wonderful, wonderful <laughs> questions. Yeah. Uh, this was really informative, and your book certainly gives us a lot to think about. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you. you very much. <laughs> the preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC, and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.